You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Uh, so tonight we're just talking about one verse, uh, Acts seventeen twenty six, but we're going to talk about the the influence and the use of Acts seventeen twenty six in American history tonight. Uh, most of my uh, U.S. history syllabi have a reference to Acts seventeen twenty six on them because of the place of this verse uh, in American history. Uh, so we want to talk about that verse first. I kind of. You know, if you want to look that up, you you can. We'll get to that in a second. First, I kind of need to, to kind of set the scene for for Acts seventeen twenty six. So, uh, in Acts seventeen, uh, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. Uh, he finds himself in Athens, Greece, uh, and he's doing what he normally would do. He sought out the the synagogue. He found out he sought out the the Jews that were there in Athens. Uh, that's the people that were easiest to kind of uh, share the message of Christ because the Jews were looking for Messiah. So Paul would go and look look at the synagogues and say, look, you know, Messiah has come. Give that message. But So Paul's going to the synagogues, but he's also kind of hanging out in the marketplace too, doing a little, you know, open air preaching. Uh, and some of the philosophers that were in Athens came up to Paul and said, hey, you got some new ideas there. We love new ideas. Would you come share them with us? And Paul's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Uh, so they invite him, and in, in the uh, Bible it says they invite him to this place called the Areopagus. Uh, this is also known as Mars Hill, and I, I, I mentioned that because you can go to Athens and uh, you can actually go to Mars Hill. It's still there. Uh, when I did my cross-cultural training at, at, at Spring Arbor, uh, I went to Greece and I was able to... I wish I could say I walked on top of Mars Hill, but it's it's like polished marble. It's like trying to walk on ice. So I kind of like crawled around the top of Mars. It was very embarrassing. I, it was worst part of the trip for me. But I, I but at least I got up there. So I got to stand where Paul kind of gave, gave this address. Uh, so. Uh, the philosophers uh, gather around, uh, and Paul is uh, going to deliver a message. He, this is going to have to be a different message, right? Because these are uh, this is not a Jewish audience who has the anticipation of uh, Messiah to come, and so he, he got to kind of craft things a little bit differently. Um, so. You know, he kind of looked around Athens and... Everything okay? Yeah, I'm just turning you up. All right. Uh, so he's kind of looking around Athens and... He's good. He's just... Uh, so he's kind of looking around uh, looking around Athens. He sees, like, you know, statues to idols everywhere. And so Paul says, this is kind of my point of contact. Uh, so he delivers a sermon, and it's a great sermon. I hope you'll take time to read it on your own. Uh, it's one of Paul's finest. Uh, to, to sum it up, essentially what Paul says, look, your, your, your God or your gods are too small. Uh, you worship all these handmade gods. You need to understand there is a God 
bigger than all of these idols who has created the universe, created humanity, and this is the God that you need to know. This is the God that you need to learn to obey. Uh, in the midst of delivering this message, uh, Paul will... Sorry, distracted by... Uh, Paul will uh, deliver Acts 17.26. This is what he'll say. This is Acts 17.26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. From one man he made every nation of men. Uh, in the King James, that verse uh, was... Uh, of one blood, he hath, God hath made all the peoples of the earth. What's that? No, I just, I just kind of said it. Uh, of one blood, he hath made all the peoples of the earth. Now, it's kind of easy to miss how revolutionary this statement actually is. Uh, we can recognize this as uh, uh, one of the central themes through scripture. Uh, particularly if you've ever read, you know, Genesis uh, 1 through 3, uh, we know uh, that God made uh, all of the human race from one mom and one dad, right? Adam and Eve. Uh, and Paul's just kind of reaffirming this here, the idea of a common creation, that no matter where we're from, no matter what we look like, we are all created in the image of God. Uh, we are part of a common humanity. Uh, and then just just naturally, uh, inherently endued with uh, a dignity and worth because of, uh, because of our being created in God's image and being descendants of this Adam and Eve. Uh, Paul is affirming this here. What's revolutionary is who's saying this and who he's saying it to. Now, what do we know about Paul? Who was Paul before he was Paul? That wasn't his original name, right? Paul was Saul. And what do we know about Saul from the book of Acts? Um, he didn't like Christians very much, did he? Uh, Paul was a Jew, but he was like, like super Jew. Uh, he was being trained to be, uh, he was being trained to be an extraordinary leader of Judaism. Uh, very devout for the faith. So much so that he was one of the leading persecutors uh, of the Christian church. So knowing that about Paul, we can uh, we can reason that Paul probably then also grew up uh, having a common Jewish attitude towards non-Jews or the Gentiles, right? Jews grew up uh, believing that non-Jews, the Gentiles, were unclean, right? Because they didn't follow the dietary restrictions. They weren't you know part of God's chosen nation, what have you. They were unclean. Jews went beyond that, though. Uh, it was common to refer to non-Jews not just as unclean, but as dogs, as less than human. And we can imagine that Paul, or we can imagine that Saul probably grew up with that uh, very kind of hands-off, even a sense of superior, superiority uh, towards non-Jews. That's part of probably Saul's theology. But of course, Saul became Paul. He was confronted uh, by Christ. Right. Uh, and Paul becomes uh, very, very different, uh, not only uh, in his relationship towards Jews. Now he's trying to win Jews to, towards Christianity, but also in his added towards to attitudes towards non-Jews. 
Of course, the central theme of the book of Acts uh, is Christianity growing up through Judaism uh, and then those early Christians having to realize, hey, this isn't just for the Jews. Uh, this is for everyone. Uh, and so you need to get out of the synagogue. You need to go to the non-Jews to and deliver this message, right? Uh, now we come to Acts 17, 26. Understand how radical this is. Uh, that Paul formerly saw, uh, a person who grew up with this sense of superiority towards non-Jews, not only is he standing before a group of Gentiles, he previously would have considered to be unclean, perhaps even dogs. Not only is he willing to associate with them, to be in the same company with them, but he's telling them, God made us all of one blood. We are all part of the human race. This is what Paul even more radically would say in the book of Galatians, Galatians 3.23. You know, in the church, there's no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, female, male. You know, all those hierarchies that human beings, sinful human beings have created uh, to justify exploitation, hold power over others. In the church, that doesn't exist. Christ is all and is in all. We see how radically Paul is transformed by the message of the gospel uh, and by his understanding of the church, that he's able to stand before a group of non-Jews and say, hey, we are part of a common humanity here. You are being invited into the church uh, where these, these old distinctions of Jew and Gentile, they don't exist anymore. Uh, Acts 17, 26 is not only a testimony to the common creation, uh, which runs through all of Scripture. But Acts 17.26 Acts 17, is a testimony to how radically Paul was transformed. Uh, that if Paul, and most likely he was, steeped in that, that, that racism that most Jews would have been brought up in, that he has so thoroughly overcome that. Uh, Acts 17.26 is also a great testimony toward the boundary-breaking nature of the church. The church is a transnational institution. In uh, the distinctions that human beings have created between nations and, and, and races, and even thinking one gender superior over another, uh, these things are broken down in Christ, in the church. And Paul is there giving testimony to that in Acts 17, 26. What does this have to do with American history? Well, you might know that in the past uh, there was slavery in North America. Uh, uh, Europeans who came over in the 15 and 1600s, they didn't have slavery kind of ready-made there. They came here and they reinvented it. Uh, the Spanish came to Central and South America and began enslaving Native Americans. In uh, the 1600s, it's actually the Puritans uh, who are pioneering slavery uh, in North America. Uh, the first colony to legally recognize slavery in North America is actually Massachusetts. In 1641, and the Puritans were not enslaving Africans at that time, they were enslaving Native Americans. Uh, eventually, uh, very gradually, Africans are being brought in through the slave trade, uh, particularly into the southern colonies, but, but African slavery does not really begin to expand until the 1700s. So slavery really begins among the Puritans uh, enslaving Native Americans. Why it is important to understand that? Uh, professing Christians are central towards establishing slavery in North America. Not only that, 
but they thought Christianity actually justified their actions. Uh, the, the reason they thought that they could enslave Native Americans and eventually Africans uh, is because that, uh, they said Native Americans and Africans weren't, uh, weren't Christian. If they were Christian, well, you can't do certain things to Christians like enslave them. But if they're not Christian, well, that's okay. We can enslave them then. Uh, Christianity was, uh, Christ, being Christian or not being Christian was central to your, even your social status uh, in colonial America, whether you could be slave or not slave. And so Christianity is there from the start and even in some ways creating uh, slavery and racism in North America. But have you ever heard this before? Maybe even said this, you know, we can't really judge people in the past for the, the things that they did because like everybody thought that way. Just everybody did that. It was common for slavery. Well, we can't really judge people for, for owning slaves in the past because everybody thought slavery was okay. One of the problems with that is almost in every generation, there's somebody there saying, this is not okay. And that was the case with slavery. Yes, the Puritans were enslaving Native Americans, but Roger Williams left to form the colony of uh, Rhode Island, in part because he believed it was wrong to enslave Native Americans. And then the Quakers came. And the Quakers testified against slavery in all of its forms. It's, it's Native American form, but eventually it's African form too. And the Quakers, uh, through all the way into the American Revolution, at the time of the American Revolution, there were an estimated 350,000 uh, enslaved Africans and African Americans in North America. The Quakers stood there saying, this is wrong. And then in the 19th century, uh, you had what historians usually call the radical abolitionists. People like William Lloyd Garrison and, and Frederick Douglass, the Grimke sisters. We call them the radical abolitionists because they not only, not only did they believe that slavery should be immediately abolished, uh, but they believed that the freemen should then ha enjoy full American rights uh, and full Christian rights. They should be accepted as fully American and fully Christian. How did these abolitionists, the Quakers, Roger Williams, how did they come to these kind of conclusions? How did they come to their anti-slavery and their anti-racist conclusions? One of the places that they looked was Acts 17.26. You see this littered throughout abolitionist writing. God made us of one blood. So this idea of a superior and inferior race that you can enslave that doesn't square with the testimony of scripture. God made us of one blood. So who are we to say that we can't associate with this particular group that they're somehow inferior or unclean? Acts 17.26 was a, uh, a rallying cry for the abolitionists. Uh, well, slave owners said, well, you know, that verse says slaves obey your masters. Uh, see, slavery is biblical. The anti-slavery activists of the 18th and the 19th centuries say, do, do, do you not read Acts 17, 26? God made us all of one blood. Uh, he made all the peoples of the earth from one man. There, there are no races. Uh, there's just humanity. Uh, there is no basis for slavery. There's no basis for racism. They even had a, a college in 1855, Berea College, uh, founded on Acts 17.26. That's how powerful this verse was in, in testifying, not just to anti-slavery, but to anti-racism in America. 
Uh, and so what you have running through American history is Christianity central to racism, but central to anti-racism as well, too. Uh, and ultimately, it took a civil war, but the forces of Christian anti-racism went out. And I wish I could just kind of end the history lesson then. But we know that racism doesn't end with the end of slavery, does it? Racism has a new work to do. Uh, and you probably know this from your history classes as well, too. Slavery begins uh, in a, kind of in an altered form, uh, becomes a part of what we call like Jim Crow, the segregation system that develops in the years after the Civil War. Now, this had initially developed in the North before the Civil War, right? Northern states freed their slaves and they immediately began segregating, uh, ostracizing, uh, even kicking them out of church. I mean, there's a reason that uh, we have a, a black church movement in the United States is because white churches uh, kicked their black church members out after they were uh, freed from slavery. Uh, this is all happening in the North. After the Civil War, it's really beginning to happen in the South. Do uh, you see a lot of elements of slavery uh, being kind of continued, but now under the segregation system? Uh, and to be historically honest, we have to talk not just about segregation, but Christian segregation. Because uh, people drew upon the Bible to justify uh, their segregation efforts. Now, a major passage that segregationists used was the Tower of Babel story. You guys know the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, humanity got together, we're building this giant tower to the skies. God says, I'm, you're not going to do that. He confused, well, here's what the segregation has said. God, confu uh, 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 God scattered the races at the Tower of Babel. So who are we to undo what God has done? God scattered the races, so who are we to undo the work that God has done? What's the, of course, what's the problem with that interpretation of the Tower of Babel? Did God actually scatter the races? Is that what the Bible says? No, he said he confused their languages. There's nothing in there about race. But that's the way that it was interpreted by Christian segregationists that the Tower of Babel, God separated the races. Uh, and you might say, wow, this is, that's, that's really kind of silly reasoning. Look, you have court justices throughout the segregation era, running all the way into the 1960s. I mean, you have the legal system of the United States invoking the language of scripture, saying things like God separated the races. Uh, there's a there's a inter, uh, interracial marriage. Uh, there was a bans on interracial marriage all the way till 1968. You had justices upholding bans on interracial marriage, uh, invoking things like the Tower of Babel, saying, you know, uh, God separated the races. We can't uh, we, we can't undo this. So the Babel was one of the main places, but and I know this might might hurt your head a little bit. Another place that they looked was Acts 17.26. And you say, how could that be? Edwards, you, you just said that Acts 17.26 was used to, 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 to fight racism, to fight slavery, right? Acts 17.26 affirms that the common humanity. Well, there's another part to that verse, isn't there? 
There's a second half. And here's where the segregation is looked to. He, meaning God, determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. The King James uses the uses uh, says, uh, God set the bounds of their habitation. Segregationists read Acts 17:26 and says, "Aha, you guys, you know, telling us that you know there's like equality from Acts 17:26. You guys didn't read the second half of the verse. God set the bounds of their habitation." And segregation has said, see, look, God set the white people here and the black people here and the brown people here and the green people way up here, you know, so they won't invade the earth. A little Martian humor in there. Um, and who are we to undo God's boundaries? And so Acts 17, 26 becomes part of the segregation argument. Uh, you might have heard of um, Bob Jones University. Bob Jones Sr. would give a, a sermon in the midst of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. Is segregation scriptural? And Bob Jones Sr. would conclude, yeah. Yeah, segregation is scriptural. Uh, he would draw upon the Tower of Babel, but he would also use Acts 17.26, saying God had set the bounds of their habitation. And who are we to undo the, the boundaries that God had set up? Bob Jones would uh, deny uh, uh, interracial couples' admissions to their university as late as 2000. Uh, they denied, denied admissions uh, to an interracial couple, and they cited things like the Tower of Babel and Acts 17:26, saying, "You guys are running against Scripture. God set the bounds of their habitation." And so Acts 17:26 is had an interesting history in United States, uh, in America, hasn't it? Uh, from running against slavery, uh, against racism, all the way to supporting this racist institution of segregation, all the way into the 1960s. What are we, can, what are we to conclude uh, about this, this, this verse and the uses of this verse through American history? I can imagine some people saying, well, it just shows you can, you know, the, you can get anything from the Bible. The Bible can justify any position. I don't think that's the lesson that we should take. I, I think that we can say there's there's better and there's worse interpretations of Acts 17:26. Uh, I think that the bounds of uh, the bounds of their habitation uh, and taking those 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 lifting those verses, uh, lifting those words out of that verse uh, and out of the whole of Scripture. Uh, and suggesting that a system that puts up signs like uh, white customers only uh, and, and justifying that based on these four verses coming, uh, these four words coming out of this particular verse, I think we can say it's a pretty bad interpretation. Uh, when we interpret scripture by scripture, so we put Acts 17.26 against the whole uh, of the book of Acts, uh, against the whole of the Bible, running it all the way back to Genesis. Uh, I think we can say that those who thought of Acts, Acts 17.26 as uh, opposing slavery and opposing racism probably had the better interpretation. So I don't want to uh, suggest that, you know, given how different this verse has been interpreted, that you can say that, well, you know, this scripture is, is, is relative. I think if we follow proper 
uh, proper means of, of interpreting scripture, especially putting scripture in context and comparing it to other scripture. I think Acts 17, 26 stands out still uh, as a, a premier anti-slavery, but definitely an anti-racist uh, verse. So then uh, what, what, what can we learn, I guess, from this history? Well, are we going to allow scripture to transform us? Or are we going to transform scripture to meet our sinful desires to exalt ourselves by tearing other people down? You know, are we going to uh, allow the word of God to just speak for itself and to transform us? He wasn't supposed to be here, but he's here. Uh, one of my favorite sermons that Jamin preached last year, he just, he just read the Sermon on the Mount. Why did he do that? Because he was up too late playing Fortnite the night before and forgot he forgot to write a sermon. I mean, it's Jamin, so it's a no. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it's because it's because look, sometimes all we need is just to read the words of Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of saying, "Are you living this?" If you haven't done that for a while with the Sermon on the Mount, I'd encourage you to do it. Um, it, it, it it's amazing how what what a what a punch that packs. Right? Love your love your enemies. Uh, do not judge. Do not worry. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, we could go on and on. And I think that's what we need to do with Acts seventeen twenty six as well too. Uh, is understand how the words of Jesus. Uh, can transform us in the way that they transformed Paul, uh, who was once Saul, uh, who would have nothing to do with the Gentiles, uh, to a person now who is desperately trying to find a way to make contact with them uh, and to bring them into this church, uh, the church that, uh, on the testimony of, of verses like Acts seventeen twenty six, is an anti-racist or should be an anti-racist institution. So are we going to allow scripture uh, to, to challenge us, to transform us in the way that, that Paul did? Uh, or are we, as often happened in American history, uh, are we going to take verses uh, and use them to exalt ourselves and put other people down? Uh, to, to justify the exploitation, the dehumanization uh, of others. Uh, unfortunately, this goes on and it shouldn't. So hopefully we'll find ourselves uh, on the right side of history, on the right side of uh, scripture and on the right side of Acts 17:26. That's all I got. Thank you, everyone.